I say about guests on the podcast i was lonesome you you left no no, no. i saw the Murph. car pull out of the driveway there wasn't any food in my bowl no no more guests zero having guests was your idea and it was a bad idea i, I completely shift I... all the blame to you okay. it was a good episode david and asia are amazing you know uh-huh. but that being said no more we're done no more it, the, next yeah. time I next time I hear the thought, I will I will be upset. Okay. Yeah. Wait. All this right. is this is so, strictly a two man production. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So uh, I'm back and uh, I played games. We're finally going to talk about Alice American McGee, comma <laughs> the the longest build up to a game I don't want to talk about. Uh, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it, Brogan. <laughs> Okay. All right. So we'll talk instead about Shredder's Revenge. The uh, uh, TMNT comma. Yes, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in all forms. I am a huge fan. I love the cartoons. I love the comics. I love the video games. Obviously, the primary ones would be the arcade one. Well, there's multiple arcade ones, but like self-titled Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then Turtles in Time for Super Nintendo and arcade as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. those were like the big ones and this is this is new like this just released and i yes. i take it that it is very much more turtles in time inspired because that's the only one i ever see people talk about i mean like honestly like the original original is very bare bones you know the thing i would immediately just jump into is like yes this is a brand new game but it utilizes a lot of the same imagery and nostalgia But I will say, I think there's a sort of renaissance happening with brawlers because there was a long period of time where I think brawlers were stagnating in uh, complexity and just inspiration. Uh, A lot of the brawlers are just fucking two buttons and they don't do like combos were bad. Does that make sense? Combos were bad for the genre or, or combos were bad at the time? Bad at the time. Okay. Like, it feels like, like, if you play old brawlers from, like, the 80s, look, I love, like, Final Fight and all that shit, but, like, <laughs> it gets old fast. Shout out to the to Game Boy copy of Double Dragon, my very first video game. <laughs> there you go. But, like, that being said, like, they're they're not amazing. And, like, when 3D combat stuff started to push into, like, Devil May Cry, where they got more focused on, like, mechanical complexity, there was a lot of games that... Still didn't, still didn't hit it. But uh, I think now with this and um, Streets of Rage Four, um, I think these are by the same devs. Um, I think there's, I think it's making a comeback. It's making, it's making the resurgence. And what a, what a choice to do it with turtles, especially the old like '80s turtles. I was very surprised this wasn't like a reinvention. It is strictly, well, I guess I haven't played the full game. Does it feel like it's strictly just like? We've reached into the timeline and pulled out a direct sequel to Turtles in Time. I think so, yeah. Specifically um, for the voice acting, I think the voice acting is a big one. They they pulled in some of the 
things and they pulled in the same iconography pulled in like the same designs i i would i would say 100 percent okay does it feel because here's my issue with turtles in time and i guess a lot of brawlers of that era is that i get through like the first three levels like having a lot of fun ostensibly because it's easy and then when i get to the later stages i'm like and eh, I'm, I'm either doing the same thing over and over or they're just introducing like big health sponge enemies I think this game is real. I think what makes this game really special in terms of that is number one, the game is definitely health balanced around quick, short bursts of levels where a level is just meant to be a brisk, you know, boom, boom, bam. And I don't think they're huge, heavy damage sponges. Um, they actually give a lot more tools. I think the reason for damage sponges was to make games artificially harder. That's one of the artificial difficulty mm. things is just upping that pool but um here you're given so many tools to both continue the game um play the game at your own pace and ultimately just whoop butt with uh combat options that um the game's never actually hard unless you let it be hard okay okay and it's got like quite a large roster because they don't seem to branch out beyond the main four turtles you know, for a lot of these games. Sure. Being able to play as, like, Splinter and April right off the bat, and then you've got Casey, who's unlockable, which is still weird to me that he's the one unlockable. Th that makes sense, but, like, also, like, for me, Casey wasn't... I don't know how much of the Turtles cartoon you saw in the 80s, but Casey's not, like, huge in that show. Um, Casey's, like, much more of a other media thing, because mm -hmm. he's a little bit more of a psycho. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that checks out. Well, he was, I didn't he really rise to prominence with, like, the uh, live-action movie? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's in the cartoon, but, like, yeah, largely it's the live-action movie and all that stuff that really uh, makes him. Um, I think they all offer unique uh, opportunities, and, like, I like their stat differences. I like playing as different turtles. What's your favorite turtle, Murph? My favorite turtle? I was always a Donnie. Why Donnie? Uh, he had, he had a bow staff, which I like as a weapon. Um, I like purple. Uh. <laughs> okay. All right. No, these are good reasons. Yes. I was never really into like the does machines part. And I really don't like his modern iterations where they just make him a poindexter. My, the, the, the turtles cartoon, I really, uh, for lack of a better phrasing, grew up with, like I had VHSs of the original, uh, 80s cartoon but like i i grew up with the 2000s tmnt oh yeah the turtles counted off one yeah. two three four oh. yeah that that song yeah yeah well what about you i'm i'm let me let me guess you're a you're a michelangelo you you already knew that we've put spoiler alert i played like the first level with him <laughs> you know that yeah but that was a while ago <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think michelangelo i mean i like nunchucks i like the i like the uh I like the fun attitude where he's like wisecracking no matter what, even mm. in like more serious things or like when they try to differentiate the personalities. Yeah, he is their Pagliacci. <laughs> Deep inside, <laughs> this is going to give me a spiel. Have you, there's, there is a comic called The Last Ronin. Have you heard of this comic? No, but maybe, but it's a, it's a rather generic name. The Last Ronin is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic, uh, that takes place in the, the distant future where all the turtles have died except Michelangelo. Oh, and wait. And Michelangelo is a battle-scarred turtle. And he has one arm. This was adapted for the 2000s team in T. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just one of those things that's, you know, he's, he's a very complex 
creature. Why isn't Venus de Milo in the game? Is that going to be <sighs> DLC? No. They added her in the IDW comics. Well, this is a video game podcast. Okay. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any questions well, for about DLC, the game? For DLC, are they going to add the Cowboys of Mumesa? I don't think so. I think that's going to be a pass. Oh. My, uh, my number one pick for DLC characters because i want a character i i kind of don't want more stages or anything Mm -hmm. would be either a shredder himself i just want to play shredder that's why i thought would be unlockable yeah i I felt like he was gonna be a secret unlockable and then he wasn't so i was super disappointed but then i also wanted usagi yojimbo which is his own comic character from another uh franchise by stanley or stan sakai and uh really good but he often crosses over with the turtles he's the samurai he was in the uh the tmnt smash up on the wii he he's in a lot of stuff yeah he's in like almost all the cartoons and he he shows up when he can i guess get licensed so you do feel the characters have like very different play styles because that's another thing i have with brawlers is it's like i'm doing the same button impresses to do the same thing with the characters and my brain goes these do not these are not different play styles it's just different numbers. Well, well, I mean, I think I think it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't scenarios. Because I think I do, and I think we do the same things over and over again. We just do the same patterns and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the numbers are different, indicating that they have preferred ways of play. Like, um, I believe there's different, like there's different supers and all that, and there's different aerial mobility techniques for different characters. Okay. They also have different reaches and speeds. So okay. like those numbers matter in big ways, I guess. Do you feel like you have to play it with other people? Like, is it a good solo experience? Personally, yes. But that being said, I would say no to large majority of people. However, the matchmaking, other than our experience, matchmaking oh. with random people is easy. It's matchmaking with your friends that's bad. I've played with seven people and it's actually crazy. Is it a long game? Uh, I mean, depends on how you define long, but I would say no. Okay, it's more. It's definitely more for that like score chasing. Well, well, you yeah yeah you played at least one level, so you have a gist of what a level feels like. There's like seventeen of them, and also I've played other beat 'em ups. So yes, it's it's not like crazy longer. There's not like an RPG thing. I'll cite another game here. Um, the the last beat 'em up I really devoted time to in terms of like a new beat 'em up was Scott Pilgrim versus the World for the Xbox 360. Do you yeah. remember that game? I, I picked that up on Switch when it had its uh, relaunch because that was one I always wanted to play. But by the time I had income, uh, it was already taken down, so I picked it up. I think I've made it as far as the third boss. I need to go back to it. I just haven't picked up my Switch in a while. You you know I think that is a game that tells me how the genre was having problems i think the game is fun question mark but mm-hmm. not like i i think there were clear problems uh specifically like it's really a river city ransom game or like a kunio kun game in that way whereas like your main thing was leveling up and your main thing was collecting money and then upgrading through that and like that's not necessarily like it can be fun but like there's still damage sponges and your your hope is to just get through the next level and it was it was more painful i don't think brawler should be painful anymore does that mm. make sense no no that definitely checks out i think that's kind of why my aversion to the genre because like i love games with lots of different playable characters but the issue i find with a lot of brawlers is is that the characters all end up playing the same in my mind 
Do you feel that way about, like, Dynasty Warrior games? The last Dynasty Warriors game I played that was, like, a Dynasty Warriors game was, like, six. I was generally speaking of the genre, the Musou genre, but yeah. Yeah, but I love, um, like, I have, like, Hyrule Warriors, and I have the okay. uh, the One Piece Pirate Warriors, and I like so, those so games. So those are different enough. Yeah, the characters play, like, they just, like, all I, I need different visuals, I guess. Okay, that's fair. No, that's fair. Don't blame me there. That makes sense. <laughs> L- let me ask you, uh, I, are, are we ready to segue into your game of the week? Well, you don't You don't ride a Segway in Rollerdrome. You ride roller skates. Do you think there should be a Segway game? A Segway game? Well, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I would, you know what? I could see like a very Mario Kart style racer with Segways. But you do it as like That's like right. a you do it like twisted metal. Oh good yes oh the battle segues yeah. I agree with this or I road rash for this there you go uh, sidewalk rash really Paul yeah. Blart Mall Cop uh, is the primary uh, playable character. oh man if you sure. did someone someone out there with modding capability change the character in Rollerdrome and replace it with Paul Blart on a Segway. <laughs> There you go. Uh, I don't know anything about this game. So as of now, that is the image I have of this game. So tell me about it. So this game just came out. It was uh, highlighted in Sony's like E3 indie sizzle reel. Okay. Like it j- just came out this week. Yes. And what this game is, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to coin a genre. I don't care if this already has a name. I'm going to call this a groove getter. Okay. Um. So what this is, it's set in a dystopian, like, sort of 70s-inspired future of 2030, where the most popular sport in the world is a blood sport called Rollerdrome, where contestants ride around on roller skates in these, like, big arenas with weapons to eliminate house players, which are, like, people hired to be their opposition, and they're, like, trying to get points and uh, stay alive. Oh, my goodness. And uh, imagine... Imagine Tony Hawk Pro Skater or Jet Set Radio, but you have a gun. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, is is that the genre? What was the genre name Murph created for a genre that already exists? Groove Getter, because okay. what this is, so the, it's Tony Hawk in the way that how the movement works. It's a lot like how you go off ramps and how you can air over ramps or how you pull off tricks. But the tricks are really de-emphasized. You're not pulling together combos of tricks. Um, tricks are how you reload your gun. I see. Because uh, when you impress the judges, they'll give you more ammo. Oh, there you go. So you'll like shoot a guy, run out of bullets, jump off a nearby ramp, do a sick like seatbelt grab or whatever, a flip. And they'll give you more bullets. There you go. And you can use that to kill more guys. So so how does the loop feel to you? It feels very good, but I will tell I will tell people that this game does not ease you in okay. very much. Which is fine because there's a small number of st- there's really ultimately like sixteen stages. Each one's with like ten different challenges. Like Tony Hawk, there's stuff like grab all the stunt tokens, perform this kind of trick in this kind of area. Eliminate all the guys in one combo, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't really want a lot of tutorial stages, but it gets very hectic, very fast. You are con. It's it's one. I call it a groove getter because you got to get in the groove. You you just kind of have to clear your brain because there's a lot going on. You have guys 
that are shooting seeking missiles. You have snipers across the map that you have to like perfect dodge their shots in order to get like a damage bonus. In the second tier of stages, they introduce this uh, enemy called like the Photon or something, okay. which is an enemy that will focus a laser beam on you um, that will track your movement for a good number of seconds. Wherever that beam hits, it will leave a wall of fire that will damage you. And the moment the enemy takes damage, they will immediately teleport to somewhere else in the map. Oh, wow. And the first time you encounter this enemy, there's one of them in the first wave. The second wave introduces three of them on top of all the other enemy types you've already dealt with. Is that not frustrating? It's one of those circumstances where, like, at the start, when you encounter, like, a new enemy type, you're like, oh, my God, I have to, like, now think about this. It's a ton of different spinning plates. Yeah. But once you get in that groove, yo, then it just becomes second nature. Because all the enemies have the same sort of tells for when you're supposed to dodge. It will show you, like, if an enemy's going to do an AoE, it will show, like, a red circle on the map. And then that circle will blink white right before they um, attack. And that's your cue to dodge if you're in that circle. Okay. So and if you dodge at that moment, then you get um, what's called a perfect dodge, which counts as a trick. So it'll reload your gun. And then um, you can also focus time. Um, at any point, which is you hold down the left trigger and will slow down time so you can uh, target. And again, with this game, it strips away a lot of what you would consider like things you have to focus on. So like you do these tricks, you can't crash. There's no way to screw up a trick like Tony Hawk yeah. because the game recognizes that you have enough on your plate. Uh, the game auto-aims for you. When you're near an enemy, it will auto-aim for you. Okay, so it's it's not demanding a lot. It's, it's just a lot of the plates, a lot of the plates will spin themselves if you let them, but the trick is letting. Yeah, it's a lot, it's strictly in how you execute everything. And when you like get in, because I was stuck on one of these challenges earlier this morning where it's clearing one of the later game stages with a combo of 25. And the combos are like at how quickly you kill enemies in succession. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't do this. I can get as high as. 10 and then i just kind of zoned out and would like i'm just gonna do a run to like practice it and i zoned out and i looked at my combo thing i was like oh i have a combo of 28 when did that happen it, it just adds before you even know it yeah it's it's very satisfying especially since it's one of those games that like when you do cool stuff you feel cool like you jump over a sniper do a flip and shotgun them all in the same motion is the style like a jet set radio and how is the soundtrack because this feels like a game where soundtrack and audio design matter so it's done in a cell shaded style it looks like a 70s comic book okay like when i said it's 70s inspired so it's all very analog technology gotcha and um, all the enemies have great silhouettes, like you can tell at a distance, e in motion, like that there, that's a riot guard, that's a sniper, that's a batter. Um, the soundtrack, I couldn't hum you any of the tunes from the game. It, it doesn't have any, like, songs with lyrics or anything, like a Jet Set Radio. Sure. But I'm sure it blends into the gameplay. Yeah, when you're in the gameplay, uh, yeah, the soundtrack does stand, stand out. There you go. And there are a ton of audio cues to let you know, like, what's happening. Like, before a sniper shoots at you, there's an audio cue that helps with the perfect dodging. Um, when your combo meter is about to run out, there's an audio cue. When you're on low health, there's an audio cue. So... And so it really just helps you focus on what you're doing. Gotcha. Um, so you would highly recommend to anyone and everyone? Yeah, I, I recommend this game. I think this game, it's definitely one I want to see a community built around because I want to see people who are better at this game than me play it. 
that makes and sense. just see like oh my god he he did that i didn't think i could do that see that's that's what like speed running or like except like like really good talent like really impresses or shines is in games like that for me so yeah i i definitely will expect this to pop up on some like end of the year lists um because it just kind of oozes a real effortless style um this is from the same devs that did ollie ollie okay Gotcha. Yes, I'm I'm familiar. Yes. So if you think about like how those games are structured, it's that, but it's a 3D shooter. Ooh, see, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, you also played a game that's about style and and getting in a groove. Yes, correct. I played Neon White, which is a, um, I guess I would say speed run shooter card game but a very low focus on the cards it's interesting that speed run is considered a genre now isn't it <laughs> i mean it's ultimately obstacle course but it is very clearly timed like time is clearly like the primary goal so i've tried watching gameplay of this because i i was interested in some of the trailers i can't figure out w- how this game plays so so explain to me bro explain okay um you uh you go into like a visual novel format for the typical story exposition in which you are an assassin who died and in the afterlife has to participate in some game um for angel and god's amusement to kill demons and you're competing with other assassins uh to get a spot into heaven and each level or and so like before you start and there would be a long segment of say 10 small bite-sized levels but before and in between all of that are uh visual novel segments or like persona segments or wherever where you would go to different locations talk to different assassins or other characters learn about them and uh improve your relationships with them or by like learning about the lore of the game or whatever or learning about your personal history but the game itself when you go into those missions again about 10 missions per like time does that make sense where it's like there's like Mm -hmm. a they're they're done in rapid succession it's kind of like a super hot sure yes that that would be the way to say it is that and then you basically have to get to the end of the stage and make sure you kill all enemies i think the most impressive thing for me about it was i think the game incentivizes you to keep playing it in that way because my brain is not tuned to a speedrunner's brain. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're not looking you're not looking for how you can break the game. You just do you 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 follow the path that the devs laid out for you. Exactly. Like yes. So the way the reward system works is like when you get the silver like you can get silver, gold mm-hmm. and then ace or you can also get bronze, but who cares about bronze? Bronze means nothing. And ultimately those like small little Metals give you different rewards. So you can get a you know, leaderboard. You can see your ghost. If you get the silver medal, you can see your ghost. So you can watch how you played it and see where you went wrong. Um, and then when you get gold, um, you can actually get um, oh, a hint okay. towards a way to severely cut your time. And um, obviously, if you get ace, you're just you're able to like see and participate in the leaderboard. Ace is the one you want. So it's a it's a run and gun shooter. Like a you said, there were cards. The cards aren't like super big of a deal. They're essentially the resource. So let's say you get a card of your pistol. 
um, your pistol um, has six bullets in it and you can shoot those six bullets and then the card goes away. Or you could also spend the card for an additional ability, which is an extra okay. jump for the pistol. So you get a double jump with it. So then you are burning cards fast and when you kill an enemy, you get another card. So then it can multiply, like you can keep going. Um, you can only have a cap of three cards per weapon and you can only have two weapons on you. But that being said, like it, it goes fast. The cards burn real quick. So do you make a deck? No, no. It's more just like you choose. Again, it's more like a resource than an actual card game. Does that make sense? Where it's like, oh, okay, I have two purples. And and the purples uh, shoot a bomb on the ground and allows me to jump up in the air. Or it allows me to shoot a bomb and then it kills like five enemies super close together. So you measure whether or not you want to spend an entire card to do those. Or you want to spend it to... Uh, spray. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, I'm wrapping my head around it now that you say that. Okay, so, but the, like, the pistol adds an extra jump, so some of the cards change. It's like, do I want to move quicker or kill enemies? Yes, there's one that, there's one that's like a rifle, which is like a, you know, high DPS, low, low ammo, and low, you know, obviously low, and like, bullets, um, mm -hmm. and... But it allows you to move really fast horizontally. So obviously that is a card that's very, very useful to have. So like high damage and all that, you, you want to have the card, but it's also not very ubiquitous. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I'm following. Yeah, I can see how that would be. So you're just making a lot of choices on the fly. Yes, and then you can see where you're going wrong. Or like whenever you see the, the path, the intended path, or at least a path that cuts your time by like... 15 30 seconds um you realize what cards you need you're like oh i need to get up there if i get up there i cut half this shit you know down or you know does that make sense yeah so then like it's all adding up in your brain it's just like why the fuck do i need this card oh that's why i would need that card okay and it it feels good it feels consistent like what you would want from something like this yes it feels very uh, articulated in every level's design the the visuals um remind me i would i would call them like you know, neon 80s vaporwave. Uh, it reminded me a lot of Paradise Killer, which was already talked about um, on this podcast once. Um, I like the visual design of it. It's super fun. And yeah, when whenever you get to the end of it, you're like, no, I think I could cut that time. So then you do it. And then you just keep doing it until you cut to a time you feel good about. And uh, I, I, I definitely enjoyed the game. Yeah, something like that. Because like going back to Roller Drone, that's something where I would beat a stage and I'd be like, no, 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 I can I can get a higher combo here. I know what I did wrong. Yes, absolutely. Okay, is the story aspect good? Because you said it's like you're doing like the persona thing. Y yeah, um, and that's one of those interesting ways that it also allows you to, that um, rewards another aspect of the game. So there's basically like, you have to play, you have to play the stage once. After you play the stage once, no matter what, even if you took 10 minutes to do it, um, you get an unlike unlockable item in the stage itself. So then you have to look around the stage for the item and then figure out how to get to it. Sometimes it's in a really weird or hard spot. And then once you get it, it's basically a gift for a character. So let's say your best friend mm. uh, or yellow. Yeah. They're all called colors in the game. So your best friend yellow, you, you bring back, you know, a beer and then you give him a beer and then you get basically his side quest and you either get unique dialogue in that visual novel way, or there's actually 
per character, or at least the main ones, there's side missions that completely revamp how the game is played. So um, there's a character's uh, side quest or side missions that require you to never be able to use the uh, special abilities for your weapons. Or there's one that's specifically all about wep- or the special abilities. Or there's one that is about dodging a bunch of shit being thrown at you. So spikes and bullet hell. So like they're they're all mixed in different ways. That's really satisfying. And then like the actual story part of it, they all have fun personalities. I don't think it's particularly like notable or memorable, but like it's fun and definitely suits the game. They complement each other in a very important way to where there's like the bursts of energy of speed run and then the slow simmer back, which I think is good for pacing. Okay. Okay. Is it a long game? Like, are there a lot of different stages or I, I would say, I would say it's, sufficiently long i don't think it's crazy long i think it's as much as you put into it that's another way to say it so it's rewarding it doesn't feel like it's too short or anything in my opinion um i i liked it a lot okay it definitely sounds like something i i i think i'll pick this up is it something you feel is the shooting difficult like it is this something because it's also mobility based is it something that would be better played with like a controller um I I did play with a controller because I I had an ugly mouse when I when I moved in here so <laughs> so I was like it's time for a controller on this bad boy um and it, I didn't have many problems it didn't auto aim very much like I I don't think it was as auto aimy as um, roller drone but that being said um the game also isn't particularly about accuracy in that accuracy obviously helps for if you want to clinch times. But that being said, often it's much simpler than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, where it's like, oh, no, you could just use your special ability here. There's a lot of times where you're just using special abilities or you're just you're like you're you can just spray it or something. It's never really a problem. OK, OK. There's never really a moment of like I fucked up and now the game is slow. I mean, there's a time where you can completely just fuck up at aiming, yes, and that would fuck up your time, yes. But that being said, like, it is ne- it was ne- for me, it was never a primary issue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's always feeling like you are, you are still in the game. Even when it's a bad run, you're still getting, like, an amount of fun out of it. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Okay, okay. I have a game that's a bit contrast to that. Uh-oh. <laughs> Tell me about this. So, Salt and Sanctuary. Am I incorrect in assuming you've played this? You are incorrect. It's it's one of those games where I nod because I know it's a Souls-like, and I go, oh, that sounds interesting, but I have never played this. So, Salt and Sanctuary, this is like... I feel like this is like one of the first like indie Souls-like. At the very least, it was one of the first I heard about. Yeah. This is a 2D Metroidvania that's also, like, cribs a ton direct from Dark Souls. Right down to, like, you know, you're not collecting souls, you're collecting salt. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you, you don't have bonfires, you have sanctuaries. Okay. All right. um, a lot of the tone is very much the same. And so I, I picked, I, I started playing this. One, because I've got a meeting scheduled with the devs at PAX. There you go. Uh, Plugging that in. There we go. That's right. Murph is going to PAX. Yeah. Um, and two, because I was feeling like playing Elden Ring again, but I didn't want to get inve- like invested in another 80-hour playthrough. Sure. So I was like, this has to be short. Um, it's not. <laughs> um, no. Do you think length is a primary issue with these games? It depends on the number of dungeons. That's what okay. I'll say. All right. Okay. If 
there's a there's a stark difference in pacing between a game that's like 12 hours long with seven dungeons and a game that's 12 hours long with 20 dungeons. That's fair. Elden Ring doesn't have that many dungeons, Murph. I, well, I mean, depending on what we classify as a dungeon. <laughs> that's fair. Anyways, continue. Let's talk about Salt and Sanctuary. Salt and Sanctuary. So it's a 2D Metroidvania. A lot of different weapon types, a lot of different armor classes. It's got your spells. It's got your your miracles, you know, your bosses, you know, your your corpse runs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I don't want to undersell what an accomplishment of development it is because this is done primarily by one dude and his wife. They're very lovely people. I met them at the last PAX I, PAX I went to. Um, and this is like a full-size Souls game. Like, there are a ton of dungeons, a ton of different enemies, a ton of different bosses. Um, My main issue is that it's kind of, it's not consistent. And there's just a little bit of sloppiness that I can't stand. Are are you anti-sloppiness? It just, it depends. It, It really depends. So there's a lot of enemies with grab attacks in this game. Particularly grab attacks will they'll lunge at you. And if you get the, the grab... Like, hitbox is the entire body of the creature. Sure. So since this is a 2D space, you're like, oh, I can jump over that. If, you know, if he's running along the ground. But if your feet touch him, then you're grabbed. So what is the intended answer for the the move? What are you supposed to do by the devs? I guess roll through it. But the roll is also a little inconsistent as well. Because y- you can get blocked on enemies when you don't have iframes on the roll. Gotcha. So if you hit the enemy at the start or the end of the roll, then you'll you'll still get hit by them. Gotcha. Even if you're still in motion. So so you're you're just anti the grabs and like it it do you, so did you feel like it was unfair? Was that the reason why you felt it was sloppy? Yeah, it felt unfair. And then because this is a two D platformer, there's a lot of times where you're fighting enemies while jumping between platforms. But the weird thing is, is like a lot of the platforms are are just barely jumpable. Okay. There's a lot of grabbing ledges and pulling yourself up. That reminds me of the game we're going to talk about later. Continue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and then the grab, like, grabbing the ledge is also weirdly inconsistent. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hit the side of a ledge, but my character won't grab it because he's just, just below it, and then you fall into a bottomless pit and die. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so now you have to run back and get your stuff. I, I'm learning more and more that I think what I really like about Bloodborne is was its consistency. The combat felt mathematical to me and it doesn't feel that way in Dark Souls or in this where it's like sometimes I'll, I'll beat this enemy in two hits and then sometimes they'll grab me and kill me for half my health bar. I mean, I think that happens in Bloodborne, but I understand what you mean, whereas it feels more focused in design. Yeah, um, I'm going to take a wild guess and going to say you're not going to like Dark Souls 2 whenever you play that in episode mm. 500 of the Daydream cast. Um, the, other, the other issue, just from a design perspective, uh, this is a big game. This is a Metroidvania, like a Metroidvania in the actual term, like you are picking up abilities Mm -hmm. that help you with traversal, like a wall jump, an air dash, the red key, which just lets you go through red doors, but there's no map. Have you played other Metroidvanias that try to simulate Souls combat? Like, did you play Blasphemous um, or Hollow Knight? No. Uh, Because I'm just wondering, like, at what stage does a 2D Souls-like... Like, I'm I'm wondering the marriage and how unholy it is or how holy it could be mm-hmm. between Souls and Metroidvania. And I don't know the answer. 
I guess is like how RPG is Salt and Sanctuary if it's such a long game? That's a question. It's 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 pretty RPG. Um, so you level up through like your salt, which you get from killing enemies and bosses and finding in the environment. Um, and that goes into a skill tree. And in that are like it, it's one of those ones where it's like a node is like plus one to your dexterity. Uh, you can wield class four swords now. And it's like this big branching thing where you're kind of looking like, okay, I have to like buy two nodes in endurance to get a one in dexterity. Oh, that sounds that sounds annoying. So it's, it's a little bit. I've never felt like I'm stripped for points though. Like the majority of the time, particularly because I, I'm gonna get to, I got stuck in like a rut where I couldn't find where to go, so I was just like grinding. Yeah. And now that I do know where to go, all the enemies are easy. That that's that's very familiar. Um, I think I think there's usually um, a so, yeah, go ahead. So so all the levels are really interconnected to each other. They're like really interconnected. Um, like one dungeon can connect to six different dungeons depending on where you go. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. Well, yeah, exactly, because you can like stumble like the first area. There's a there's a secret route where you can stumble into one of the mid game areas and just get annihilated. That reminds me of Hollow Knight. I think you wouldn't like Hollow Knight. And the issue comes from when because that Metroidvania progression, if you don't have a particular traversal ability, you come across a lot of dead ends. You've wasted time. And you'll be looking around, being like, okay, which path you'll go down a path, go through a dungeon. And then come to that same kind of dead end. It is like, well, that dungeon wasn't the one that gave me the ability I need. I guess I'll backtrack and look around. Yeah. I cleared through six dungeons before I discovered that the the ability I needed was five dungeons ago. God. Oh, my gosh. It, it was just in a path I had never explored in one of those earlier dungeons because I was on a roll clearing through other dungeons. You made a huge mistake. Always check every room in every dungeon. You fucked up. You fucked up big time. I didn't know it was there. I didn't. I didn't drop down because I didn't. Th I thought there was a pit. <laughs> so, and the fact that there's no map really like harms that aspect. If there was a map where I could be like, oh, there was a path there, I never went. That would have solved a lot of problems. Or the fact it there is fast travel in this game. The fast travel item doesn't say that's what it does. Is it just like a a warp whistle that takes you to bonfires or what? So it's two things. So in your bonfires are called sanctuaries, and this is kind of a neat feature. You can you get these little stone uh, people that you can place in the sanctuary, and that becomes an NPC, like a blacksmith or a merchant or a guy that sells you miracles. One of those is a stone guide, and the description for the stone guide says that it boosts item find in your area and will guide you uh, back to the sanctuary. Okay. It does that, but what it actually does is it facilitates fast travel between sanctuaries with stone guides in them. Oh, there you go. So I went through 10 hours of this game traveling everywhere on foot because the item didn't say what it does. And then there's another item that lets you travel to any sanctuary that has a stone guide in it called the uh, the Calling Horn. Um, but the Calling Horn also doesn't say that's what it does. So there's a lot of trial and error in figuring out things, but then also you've wasted a bunch of hours uh, not doing the things? Yes. Wow. Yes. So it's one of those circuits, like, may I am always willing to concede that maybe I'm the asshole. Sure. You know? Maybe I'm the one I should have tested that stone guide item much earlier 
but I didn't because I didn't feel I needed a boost to item find. Do, do you think that there was a sufficient enough developer, like that gap that allowed you to get the item that you totally missed? Do you th- feel like that was your failure or do you think it was the developers? I think it was a failure of the developer because like I said, these these dungeons, it's impressive how they all connect to each other. Like you will like open a path and like walk through and be like, oh, this is that tower I couldn't get through earlier. Yeah. But that tower's in a dungeon like three levels ago. So it's like, why do I need to come back here ever? And, you know, and there's a lot of like, you can approach the bosses from either side of their arena, depending on the uh, progression you're going through, which is like cool. So you can really tackle the game in literally any order you want until you get to those points where you need specific abilities to advance. And so I think if if they had made it so those abilities are more like in places every player would have gone through, then that would have worked. Well, that's that's the challenge of progression, right? Where it's like, um, especially if you have to unlock abilities, it's it's when it's abilities and not keys that it gets really dangerous because Dark Souls is a lot of what you just said. But half the time or 90 percent of the time, it's it's not abilities, it's keys. You just open a door and mm-hmm. it's like, okay. But like if, if you fundamentally need an ability to progress through the game um, and it's tucked away in a corner um, and especially if the game is non-linear, the, the developers do have to kind of shape your experience. There is a reason why Metroid's got more linear. Does that make sense? Where it's like, yeah, they have to they have to ensure that there's some sort of intended experience. And there's a lot of people out there. I don't want to say assume or anything, but they value that freedom more than anything where it's like you could go anywhere and I could beat the game in any order I want. It's like that's a little that's that's definitely interesting and hard to balance around and can definitely be praiseworthy. And if it's all interconnected, it can look impressive. But is it fun? And sometimes it's not. Yeah. Yeah, I think this game is definitely something where um, they needed to trim like 20% of it. Okay. I, I haven't finished it yet. And with all the negativity I'm saying, I'm, I'm probably still going to finish it okay. because it does have me in that like loop uh, that Souls likes get you in. Like, oh, if I, I, if I clear this dungeon, then I can level up three times and then I can, uh, you know, et cetera, et I'm cetera. pretty sure there's going to be a sequel, right? That's what you're talking about them with. Um, are, are you going to be excited to play it? Um, so the sequel's already out. Oh. Um, but what the, I'm meeting with them about is they're implementing a PvP mode. Oh, snap. Um, so overall, like, Salt and Sanctuary, it, it's, it's fine. I think just overall I'm feeling more frustrated by it than I am feeling badass. Okay. So I think that's my overall, like, frustration with it. It's just, like, it just needed a little more time in the oven. Well, let me ask you a Souls question then. And I didn't, I don't mean to be like this. I have felt, I have felt frustrated more than badass every single time in my first playthroughs. Except Elden Ring, I guess. But, like, Mm -hmm. otherwise, like, Bloodborne, Dark Souls, all of them, just, like, any of them. I, I felt frustrated first, and then after multiple playthroughs, I, I can't yeah, once you know it. how the game is meant to work. Yes. Do you think this is one of those games where it rewards repeat playthroughs? I I think absolutely, particularly with what I was talking about with the map. Sure. Like if I was to play through this a second time, I would know where to go to get all the abilities I need for progression. The issue is I'm not having enough fun with this first playthrough that I want to warrant a second one, particularly like I'm coming up on hour 15. Oh my gosh. And I've only just, like, entered the last act. Okay. All right. 
Yeah, yep, yep. I'm learning a lot here. I, part of me thinks you wouldn't like Hollow Knight now. I'm very curious to see if you have an opinion on Hollow Knight. Anyways, final thoughts or was that it? That That's it. Like, I, I put no, like, anger upon people that enjoy it. A friend of mine, it, it's his favorite Metroidvania. So I'm not going to, like, have a negative opinion if you like the game. I'm just... I guess bad at it. <laughs> gotcha. No, that's fair. Murph's bad at video games. More news at eleven. Um, yeah, good. I'm on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're in good company, man. I'm bad at games too. Speaking of that, I played Cuphead's Delicious Last Course. Yeah, this must be a typo on the uh, the itinerary because this was already talked about last episode. Uh, as I said before, Murph, you're not allowed to bring guests onto this podcast. Okay. If, okay, if yeah. I'm not on it, it's not canon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. All right. Anyways. Yeah. Um, Cuphead Delicious Last Course. Um, David said everything. Um, Good. Glad you're talking about it now. <laughs> shut up. Um, I think the interesting thing I wanted to bring up was specifically in how the game felt a little bit more creative in the bosses. It felt like each boss kind of did something a little bit fun and funky with the normal formula that felt different it like sometimes it would go static too dynamic sometimes it would flip cameras or or like the parry only challenges of the chess stuff i felt like they were exploring a lot of different possibilities that they weren't before in the base game and then the other thing i was going to say was i think miss chalice as a character is one of my favorite ways to implement difficulty or at least lower difficulties for players. And I can explain mm -hmm. that if you so desire. Um, well, I've kind of got the gist from when David talked about it. Oh, no, wait, that's not canon, so go ahead. <laughs> there we go. Miss um, Chalice basically has um, all major charm abilities. She's got an extra thing of health. Um, she's got a parry dash, which is very important because that's a functionally a different parry. And she has a bunch of other things. She has a role. Uh, she has um, just un just unique abilities all around that um, borrow from different charms of the game. But you are also not able to equip actual charms. That being said, she is a very powerful character. She reminds me a lot of like a base from Mega Man and Base or um, Mega Man 10 in which... It's not necessarily that it's easy mode because a lot of times games will um, make easy mode where it's like, oh, the boss takes less damage and throws less things at you. That doesn't happen. Instead, what happens is they give you a character that empowers the player more immediately from the get go. And with that empowerment, yeah, there are drawbacks, but you always feel like the drawbacks are just so the character doesn't feel completely overpowered to remove the fun of the game. Miss Chalice still feels like you are playing Cuphead and it still feels engaging to enjoy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is it still fun to play Miss Chalice in the base game? Yes, I would say so. I think it's, I think it reminds me of how easy the game can be at points. But that being said, um, there's also sometimes where it mixes it up because of her, uh, because of her dash parry instead of her normal parry. There's certain enemies or objects designed that make things more difficult than the normal parries. So it also allows you to appreciate the game in slightly different ways, which is another really good way to enjoy difficulty, where it's like they okay. can still give you a, uh, an experience that can challenge you, but it's on your own terms. So what I was kind of wondering is whenever like you get these kind of games that introduce a new character with a DLC and there's like levels, 
does it feel like the DLC levels are more designed for Miss Chalice, and then the base game feels easier because those levels are designed for Cuphead, not Miss Chalice? I mean, there is definitely an aspect of that. I would say yes, um, 100%. Um, but also, I think m it's less of a problem with Miss Chalice herself. Miss Chalice is largely just forgiving. Um, the mm -hmm. big, the big, big thing is um, the new weapons. Uh, the new weapons you get and the extra coins you can unlock on the new island sort of uh, overwrite some of the older weapons. I see. Okay, so it, it messes up the progression. Yes, it can, If you, especially if you go early. I imagine that if you went to Miss Chalice's as early as possible, which is pretty, you know, pretty fucking early, um, yes, you could immediately get exactly what you want, and then you could probably stomp through the game in a way that may be less than satisfactory. And I think, like, it, it's like the chaser would be one of the examples where it's like, I, I would never use the green chaser ever anymore. Okay. Um, so one thing I'm, I'm wondering about Cuphead, with this DLC out now, would you want a Cuphead 2, or do you want these devs to go on to something else? Um, I mean, I would, I would, number one, support whatever the devs want. If they feel like they need to be spicy, they can. Um, I think the DLC shows that there was enough creativity there that I would, I, I would support either. I think the real question is, is like, is there a future for Cuphead beyond this? And I think they want to push it with like the fucking Netflix show and stuff. But um, I would be slightly interested mm -hmm. in a Cuphead 2. If there was a Cuphead 2, I would want it dramatically different. Does that make sense? I would want something like either you're, you're okay. bringing in new animation influences. Like give me an Astro Boy boss. Give me, you know, shit like that. Let's let's spice up this game a little bit. We've we've had the chicken nuggets. Let's okay. go for the fucking veal. Mm hmm. OK, I don't really track that analogy, <laughs> but sure. Yeah, well, I was just wondering because because I was getting that Cuphead show advertised to me. And I think like. This is one of those games where it got so big so fast that I always worry about devs, particularly indie devs, getting pigeonholed into making a franchise out of their first big game. That's definitely an issue I, I hope doesn't happen. The, the All the character designs are great. That's why they made a cartoon about it. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't need a Cuphead 2. If they've got something else waiting in the wings, like a Bull Man, go ahead and make Bull Man. Do it. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. You, uh, I hang out with too many potheads. I, you mean the bowl is in the receptacle? There you go. Yes. That's, yeah. Sure. Why not? All right. I forgot to ask David this last time, but who is your cuphead waifu? Oh my goodness. Um, Kalia Maria, which is the the like the like the the mm -hmm. Gorgon mermaid, uh, Medusa. Yeah. Um, it's okay. it's like an okay. airplane Gradius stage. Um, that's. This is a question I wanted to ask you, by the way. You were joking about it. You say you don't like running guns. Actually, that was the time to confront you. Why don't you like running guns? I, um, uh, I, skill ceiling. I'm not, <laughs> um, the only running gun I've really ever enjoyed was Metal Slug. And even that's mostly from an aesthetic point of view. But, but like, do you literally just find it frustrating? Like, is, is it literally just that? Or is there something more to it? I think it's just like I I don't gel with the gameplay. If it's going to be something where like the goal is to just kill a bunch of enemies, I prefer it to be much faster than most running guns are. Well, well like Cuphead doesn't do a bunch of enemies. It's a boss rush. Yeah, but I also don't like boss rush games. Uh, all right, so, whatever. <laughs> look, whatever. if you want to tie me down and make me play Cuphead, I'll play Cuphead. 
but David's I, only played nothing... ten games in his entire life. So next time we guest star, it may be Cuphead Murph. Well, that's his prerogative. <laughs> Maybe okay. we should make David play new games. <laughs> He's not the co-host of the Daydream Cast. Yeah, but we're kind of like we're kind of like demons in our own right, right? So we like we, we torture him by making by exposing him to new genres and, and flavors. I am not a demon. You implicated me in this. Sorry, sorry, Damon. <laughs> They're okay. All right. Whatever. Neutral evil. I'm looking at this list and the entire time we're talking, I'm like, what the fuck is Wildermyth? So you should tell me what Wildermyth is. So Wildermyth. Okay, whatever. Is, uh, this came out last year. Um, and uh, it's on the list because I came back to it recently because they added some content. Okay. Um. You know, long ago when I said, I really like games I can tell a story with. Sure. Wilder Myth is kind of the purest embodiment of that. Um, this is the best Dungeons and Dragons simulator I've ever seen, but it's Dungeons and Dragons from the POV of the DM. Okay. All right. That's interesting. I like that. As a DM, I enjoy this. I, I am I am a forever DM. So so what? It, it's a tactics tactics game with customizable creatable characters like XCOM um, okay. done in like a fantasy um, setting. Yes. So you make your characters, you decide how you how they look you decide their personality traits like this character's more hot-headed this character's more poetical, this character's a romantic and give them all sorts of traits and things and then the story will begin and at that point you no longer like have control over the characters. You'll get little cutscenes which are done in like a comic style Yes. And the characters will will say things and react to each other and react to events based on those personality traits you gave them. And you can make certain choices within those events because the game is sort of procedurally generated in a way. Uh so you will get a an overland event where it's like the characters come across like a treasure chest sitting out in the middle of the woods. And you have to decide, and you'll have, like, three characters, and, like, the characters that's really greedy will say we should open it. The character that's, like, cautious will say we should leave it alone. And then, like, you'll have a third option, because there needs to be one. And you'll decide which characters plan to go with. So it's a nudging game. Yeah, you're nudging them in directions. But a lot of the what the characters do, how they evolve over time, are kind of out of your hands. They will form rivalries with each other. Ooh. without your guidance they'll fall in love with each other they'll have children with each other and then those children are generated based on their traits so you don't get to make the kids gotcha so so that it sort of like all tumbles down and you sort of see a, a domino effect yeah it builds a story and the game has five like pre-written designed campaigns for each of the five different enemy factions and the enemies all look good in this the game kind of has like a 2d a tabletop aesthetic where it's all all the characters and creatures look, and environments look like paper cutouts. Yes. And so the uh, the five campaigns like will always follow the same sort of story progression, but you'll have like different characters each time and then it will have what it calls sagas, which are the more like procedurally generated. You'll like pick an enemy for the faction and then we'll sort of generate a story around that. And those are kind of hit or miss with whether or not they feel satisfying to complete because it's kind of like, okay, we defeated the king of evil and the next chapter starts and it's like, oh, the king of evil's grandfather is coming. <laughs> 
Of course. And and it is done in chapters. So you'll have like a you you have an overland that you can sort of build up and develop, and then like an objective, like we got to clear this place out of monsters, and that'll be the objective for the chapter. And when that chapter's done, depending on how you did progression wise, it will say like five years of peace pass until the next chapter or 20 or 50 years of peace pass and in that time your characters grow old and they will reach like a retirement age they'll retire and leave the party and then like their kids take over or like new recruits to the adventuring party take over it's just you get this sense of legacy like i've had like families with like dynasties from like the first hero down to their great-grandchildren so so i mean i guess i guess that's where i was ultimately going here is like so you say you play this game to sort of imagine the story and like have it develop in your brain and develop in the game um what part of the game is most satisfying for you is it seeing that new generation and how it reflects or is it what what part of it scratches the itch the most i think it scratches the itch definitely in that sense of legacy like particularly in the uh the pre-made campaigns okay because those do a very good job at feeling like the passage of time like your characters are growing older they're still dealing with like the same threat and now it's like their children's burden to carry it really like leans into that and then seeing like oh the children of like you know you get sort of like cliche story beats apropos of nothing like you know these two characters hated each other but their children fell in love and isn't that like romantic and stuff like that and then it has a legacy system so when you complete a campaign depending on how well you did you can recruit you can add a number of your characters to a legacy and what that means is that they will appear in subsequent campaigns and it's never quite like direct it's not like this is the same character. It sort of does it like Zelda. It's like a reimagining of the character. <laughs> yeah. Because gotcha. they'll sometimes make references to campaigns past, but sort of like I had a dream I was doing this. That was weird. Yeah. Um, but you can like, de- over time, you see the characters like evolve through subsequent campaigns, particularly because this game, all the characters are human, but there is a number of mutations they can take on. Okay. That's that sounds interesting. Like you'll, uh, the most common one I've seen, I guess, because I keep making greedy characters, is there's one where a greedy character will fall into a pit and they'll find this stone idol with a big uh, gemstone in it. And you can decide whether they leave that alone or they try to take the gemstone. If they try to take the gemstone, they'll be cursed to turn like into a, a crystal golem over time. Ooh. And... And that transformation happens limb by limb through chapters. So they'll start with, like, their left arm becomes a big stone shield. And then their right arm will become, like, a stone scimitar and stuff like that. So how the characters start and how they end, they can look so visually different. And then when you recruit them in Legacy, they still have that transformation. And you can progress it further or you could find a cure, etc., etc. It's just... It really scratches a storytelling itch I don't really get from any other tactics game. Okay, all right. Um, but how many tactics games have you played? Every Fire Emblem since uh, uh, Radiant Dawn. Okay, there we uh, go. All right. Did you play XCOM. Tactics Ogre? Did you do Final Fantasy Tactics and all that? No, I'm not a Final Fantasy guy, just a Kingdom Hearts guy. All right, no. All right, no, but but you, you've <laughs> been around the block is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I think like for the actual like combat gameplay, the closest I would compare it to is kind of Fire emblem um and how there's like when you have two characters side by side they'll get like a bonus to attacking um there's only three classes a hunter a fighter and a mage this game's not meant to be complex i'm guessing no no and the game the devs really de-emphasize the complexity like you get items but once you give an item to a character it's 
like you can't move it from them. Gotcha. There's no inventory management, and that really helps with like quickening the pace. I like that a lot. That's good. I mean, like a quick pace is probably actually a, a very notable thing for a tactics game. Yeah, and this game has great one more turn feeling. Like even after you finish a battle, it's like okay, well I'll move on to the next. Like you know, f- three more battles, and then I'm gonna call it quits. And now I have like what? Well, let me see, 93 hours in playtime. There we go. And so I came back to it because they added a sixth secret campaign Ooh. that you kind of have to stumble upon within one of the main ones. Um, and that one sort of intentionally brings together all of your um, most promoted legacy characters in a sort of like Avengers-style scenario that I found very cute. Aww. Well, they'll actually like say their their adventuring parties by name, like, "Oh, you're you're Alan of the uh, the Rams of the Black Horns." Oh, so it's like a big like crossover that. event. Yeah, yeah. It's whereas previous times you recruit legacy characters, it's sort of tongue in cheek with, "Well, are they the same person?" Uh, this one, they very explicitly make that. Gotcha. Um, and I know they're planning another DLC pack um, that's intending to add a new enemy faction. I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, it, it's just a game I feel I'll be playing for a long time. There we go. Well, then I, I will definitely be interested in playing it. I um, will. The I'll just add a caveat um, because I have played this with other people and they're like, why is the writing like this? Okay. It wants to do a variety of different tones with the random like overland encounters and then like the more story dedicated beats. So it's, 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 it's a bunch of different writers um, okay. doing these. So it's not really always a consistent tone. Sometimes like the prose gets so purple that it's Mace Windu's lightsaber. Gotcha. And then other times it's stuff like, oh, how are we going to have our pumpkin pie without any whipped cream? Okay, so like it it, it t- takes left turns a bunch. You got to you got to be able to roll with the punches. You got to be able to handle a bunch of different uh tones. I would most liken it to like a 2000s like action cartoon like like the 2000s TMNT series okay. where it would juggle between a really dark tone and then a really lighthearted goofy one of course well that, you're still selling me i'm uh, hey man i i can handle anything that that's thrown at me yeah but you know it really makes me feel like i'm the the author <laughs> of my own story you, you d- that i have my own my own creative stamp on the story i tell it is time for the variety minute This week's Variety Minute is on auteurs in video gaming, which is a very vague concept, I think. Do we want to explain what an auteur is? You you can give the general, like, auteur theory concept, but then we're going to have to talk about the, the developers. Uh, okay, so auteur theory. In the 1950s, film wasn't considered as legitimate an art form as it is now. This French guy was like, actually, it is art because every film contains the unique vision of its director. And so just saying, like, every director leaves their own creative stamp on a film. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. You know, when you when you see a Tarantino movie, you know what you're going to get because it's a Tarantino movie. Gotcha. All right. Well, with that being said, I think anyone, you know, possibly in the know will realize that even then these especially films or we had to put your film school prowess to good use. Thank you, Murph, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
but like these are big teams especially for video games so like even yes. even when we say there's an auteur thing to it is it question mark because like i def i definitely think directors have a singular voice and they choose they make decisions making decisions naturally does that but that being said mm -hmm. i don't necessarily think especially for games i i would sooner credit an entire team personal yeah i mean i don't really believe in auteur theory for films either yeah I think there are some directors that have their own like distinct visual styles, but is that because the director has their visual style or because they keep working with the same team of people? Oh yeah. Cinematographers you know? or editors like Tarantino had the same editor for like, you know, eight of his nine films. So like, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are we doing here? And same thing with Scorsese for a lot of his films is like that they reuse the same people and they do the same things. And that's not to say that that's not their own voice as well. Hiring people is also a director's thing sometimes. And that's like a big deal of it. So like, you know, it all plays yeah. into each other. But that being said, for video games here, I... I'm going to ignore teams and developers for the most part. I so, go ahead. Well, so we picked this because we weren't certain really about what to do. And I was like, you know, it's being billed as American McGee's Alice. So what, what is, am I as a person shopping in 2000, you know, at, at my game crazy slash Hollywood video, what am I meant to infer from American McGee's Alice? You're either meant to think, American McGee's Alice, um, who the fuck is American McGee? Or you're meant to be like, oh, American McGee, I love that guy. Let me buy this game. So so real talk, real talk, for the longest time, I didn't know American McGee was a like a person. <laughs> you just thought it was I a thought, concept or a brand? I thought American McGee was like American Gothic. Oh. <laughs> like, like it's a particular art style. <laughs> no, no. When it comes to video game directors, I think like the biggest one that comes to me is Kojima. I here's the thing. I think Kojima is probably the biggest like symbol of video game auteur theory. I think half of it is because he puts his name on everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and literally like every fucking mission of Metal Gear Solid 5 has directed by Hideo Kojima is like the fucking thing. Well, that was because um konami took his i name. know it's because of konami drama yeah. i know but the point mm -hmm. is is like in in games before that too he he puts himself out there as that and i think you'll see that a lot with phone auteurs like in that sense yeah whereas like they they bring out that personality maybe it's marketing maybe it's the voice itself yeah it's but, really you know. about who like putting yourself out there like I've had my I have in my notes here like Ken Levine for like yeah. the Shock yeah. series and it's like would I really know who Ken Levine is if he didn't like come forward and say like I made this Oh, you see, and it, it gets interesting because, like, I wrote down a bunch of them where it's, like, directors that consistently made really famous games and they're famous directors. But even then, I'm like, are they auteurs? Uh, Hideki Kamiya would be one. Um, Shinji Mikami, another two Resident Evil people. Um, Fumito Ueda is a big one, technically. Um, he is the main director of Team Ico. Mm, so like okay. Ico Shadow of the Colossus, yeah. Last Guardian, that's that is him. So like a lot of people would call him an auteur. Or you could even fucking go Shigeru Miyamoto. I was gonna bring up Miyamoto, you know what I mean? yeah. But 
when I think of like, what would you classify as a Miyamoto game, a Miyamoto experience? And that's where I think I, I kind of fall apart. Um, honestly, if you want me to be uh, like real about like, what is a Miyamoto experience? I think Miyamoto, we're going to get weird now. I, th- I think Miyamoto is, was a drawer first. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think, I don't, I don't want to necessarily say visual design, but like there's a childlike innocence to how he approaches aesthetic and game design. Obviously there are character designers and artists beyond him, but I'm saying like when he conceives of a game, he thinks of it in very simple terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Um, checks out. Even like Pikmin, Pikmin would be an example of a modern Miyamoto game because he came up with a small little idea of what would be fun. And then like he expanded it into like a thing is like, you should make that a game. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I, I think that's where the voice comes from. Okay. Okay. And then kind of like what you said in for a lot of the triple A space, it's more like the team because we don't, we're not gamers aren't very good about keeping track of who's making the media they consume. No. So there's a a lot of the times when I hear a a developer being used as a marketing point, it's like, Oh, the person making the combat for this game made the combat for devil may cry. It's Suno. Yeah, I was I was gonna debate it's yeah. Suno, but you mentioned. But it's it, always so yeah. the guy who made the combat for Devil May Cry. Never well, well no, but but here's the thing is is like now that I say that, I realize there is another person who did the combat because um oh my god. Square Enix got the guy. I don't remember his name off the top, but he was not like Itsuno was the director of the Devil May Cry games. So in a way he did the combat, but there's also another person who did the combat to further emphasize that it's not one person. It's multiple people. And when you take one, you just slap the name of, oh, he helped do the thing for this. Yeah. And American McGee was not the primary level designer of the uh, id games. As we as we will learn, Alice was his first major design game. He just contributed levels. Mm-hmm. So like when you become an auteur, you just contribute initially and then you grow into these roles. Yeah, because there's so games are so many different avenues like the programming, the game design, like the script for these more cinematic games, the direction on that. Yeah. Like someone like Neil Druckmann for um last of us he he seems to take a lot of credit for the story and writing and cutscene direction but i've never really seen him talk too much about like the gameplay design oh and he may not he may not contribute nearly as much that they they may go for completely different things who knows yeah i wanted to mention i i had a a bunch of them here um david cage was one that always came to my mind uh because is he Quantic Dream? Yes, that's Quantic Dream. What's that he's, he's the one with all the emotions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cinematic storytelling, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one sort of blew up a little bit. Same with Peter Molyneux. Yeah. Um, where I think that was a very specific time in gaming, where gaming wanted to take itself more seriously as an art form. And so it to take itself more seriously as an art form, you need to find apparently a single person and be like, see, look, this person has something to say. And then it's like, uh, I don't know. This game's not that good. So let's, <laughs> let's be real. A lot of the people that make games are nerds and they're not really good at promoting yes. their product. So when you find the one guy who's good at like talking to a crowd and having charisma and selling the product, yeah. he's becomes the face of the production. It's Steve jobs versus Steve Wozniak. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wanted to posit Suda 51. Yeah, Suda 51 is a big one. I, I would absolutely understand he's, that. He's like the yes. closest I would come to as like, okay, yes, when you get a Suda 51 game, you know what you're getting into. In ter- because he puts in a lot of very similar themes, a lot of very similar iconography across all of his games. Well, you say that. So so this is one I wanted to get on a soapbox about specifically. So from software, I don't know how much you're very familiar with like discourse around from software critically, but a lot of people um, in the communities credit Hidetaka Miyazaki for um, an authorial voice. Yeah. And there is definitely a huge element of that. But I think when you look at uh, from software as a whole, from software is obviously Elden Ring, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even from the foundation of their career, Kingsfield, Shadow Tower, and as you go into the later stuff, or even Armored Core and all that, they do the same themes. They say the same things over and over again. They do the same gameplay stuff over and over again. It's just that that Miyazaki. It's not luck either because he's a very talented director. It that's one of those scenarios where you can see what a director does, whereas he is able to organize yeah. it into a coherent and nice production where it all sm- smooths, you know, fully. And I I don't think it's fair to credit all the creative, brilliant things for these games to one person. And then we can look at character design, where it's like Elden Ring has so many unique armor designs or enemy designs yeah. or level designs. And it is so not fair to do that because it is Miyazaki was a very small part mm-hmm. of the whole. Yeah. If, Does that make if sense? If you ever want a good breakdown for this, uh, look up the article, The Door Problem by Liz England. It's sort of like a cheeky article where it's like, okay, you have a, a door in a video game. Who's handling what on the team regarding that door? And it's like, the soundtrack designer's like, the door should have a theme song. The director's saying, there should be doors in this video game, etc., etc. It really breaks it down in a really, like, fun way. But it shows, like, the pure scope of, like, how many different hands are in this video game pie. Yes. That's not a saying. Hands in the pie is not a saying, but I'm going to make it one now. Hands in the pie makes sense. Cooks in the kitchen, maybe. I don't, we're bad at analogies, I guess. Um, the veal analogy I'm still trying to understand. I'm wrapping my head around yeah. that one. <laughs> uh, the auteur theory, I think, also works for indie scenes where it's like Absolutely. one person. Like Toby Fox. Oh, shit. You know what would be the big one then? Oh, no. What's his name? The dude that did Cave Story. Oh, I don't know. I never got into t- Cave Story. Cave Story was made by one guy. Yeah. No, I know that. And I know it's huge in the indie scene, but I just I just never. Yeah. So, yeah. Toby Fox would be one. Derek Yu of Spelunky fame would be one. And Derek Yu also did a bunch of other stuff Um, for roguelikes. He really specialized you in remember, that. Um, you remember the... Y2K, a postmodern RPG. <laughs> yes. Oh, you remember that, Yeek? I feel bad for that guy because that guy got shredded. Yes, and I think Yeek is not, hashtag not that bad, but, um, you know, maybe we'll make that an episode. Um, uh, I would, but, I have yeah. never played it, but I would try it. One of the advertising points, like literally, I think even on like the Switch box art, it said songs by Toby Fox. Oh, wow. Because the Undertale soundtrack was that big when that game came out. Oh well, now that we're now that we're talking about, it, man, it's all flooding. Jonathan Blow of the indie scene, Phil Fish of Fez, which we did an episode on. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them where it's like, oh, you can see there's there's like such a huge voice there, and 
I also remembered another shout out. Oh my God, we got so many Murph. Never mind, this was a bad topic. Uh, Shigesato Itoi of uh, Mother fame is probably one of the biggest ones because mm-hmm. it's like if without him, you couldn't make a Mother game. Like people, like fans are trying to make a Mother 4 and then they have to rename it. And even then, when you look at it, it you have to make your own product. And when you can see that it's like too slavish to the material and to the voice it doesn't pan out as well does that make sense yeah undertale is an earthbound inspired game but it's a completely different game yeah how do you feel about like this is still in the indie scene but those kickstarter games where it's like we're making this game called mighty number nine by the original creator of mega man or um what was that requiem for a dream or whatever like castlevania like what Okay, all right, all right. We're gonna we're gonna rewind because I am familiar with both of these contents. Mighty Number no. Nine, KG Inafune. Yeah. Inafune was not much of a director. He was an executive producer on all on many Mega Man titles. He was primarily a character designer, which, to be fair, is a really big deal in Mega Man. Yeah. Um. So he is considered to be the father of Mega Man. I think that was worthy of the title. A lot of people don't like Inafune now. He was responsible for a lot of. Uh, He's responsible for Mighty Number no. Nine. He's responsible for Mighty Number no. Nine. Let's just say that. Um. I think sometimes that that auteur selling thing can definitely rear its head in, in an ugly way. The Castlevania one, however, I think is much fairer. That was for Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. That's it. And and that was by Igarashi, which is a big deal because Igarashi was a, a heavy hand in inventing an entire genre. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think he is definitely fair. I don't is he an auteur? No, but you can definitely feel what an uh, an Igarashi Castlevania game is versus even even all of these independent games. Let's put it this way. I have played so many indie Metroidvanias, and when I played Bloodstained, Bloodstained looked like a, you know, kind of cheap 3D asset, you know, game. Well, you know, it looks kind of cool. Yeah, it's a Symphony of the Night ripoff. Mm-hmm. The game itself was so much better than so many other indie games. I was like, oh yeah, that is what Igarashi directed game okay. is. So maybe it does matter. You okay, know? okay. We're really we're really swinging the pendulum all sorts of ways here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we don't have a fucking take on this. I think it's just like, you know, much like film auteur theory, it is a complex discussion because, yes, you know, there's there's cases to be made both ways. And a lot of the times it, you're trying to determine who are the exceptions, who are the rules. I think sometimes within yeah. companies themselves, uh, the, the company will put forward someone and spread them thin like a Tetsuya Nomura. Who made Kingdom Hearts? Yeah. I'm going to the Kingdom Hearts well, bro. Final Fantasy. Um, <laughs> you, you keep going to Kingdom Hearts. It's like that, he's the Final Fantasy guy. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts is but, like the second thing. But Kingdom Hearts got so big that Tetsuya Nomura was being like spread around Square Enix during their troubled like late 2000s period, and that's why um, that's part of the reason why Kingdom Hearts three took so long to make, and why there were so many like direct to handheld games because he couldn't find the time to focus on that. Because they were bringing him in to like direct or character design or executive direct so many other projects. No, and and it makes it makes the rest of it suffer too. Um, did you want to talk about Sid Meier or Will Wright at all? Um, 
so Sid Meier, I don't know too much, like, his actual history other than Sid Meier's civilization. I assume they're both nerds. Will Wright, I know, because I played Spore, I played The Sims, and I, I did, like, Will Wright was the first, like, game designer I knew the name of. Because I was so into Spore and I followed, like, the the uh, the devlogs for that. I, I would consider Will Wright, like, uh, as close to a quote-unquote as as it could be for this. You know what I mean? I think his name sells. Yeah, he's he's Will Wright, bitch, to quote the Simpsons game. <laughs> yeah, of course. And Sid Meier, I actually know from, obviously, Civilization. I also know him from Pirates. Sid Meier's Pirates. Good. Yep. Yeah. Iconic game. That is a Daydream cast. Okay. Eligible pick right there. Which one? <laughs> oh, we're going to be picky on them. I, I have I have primarily played the original and the Xbox version. I watched Pavlos play the DOS one, so I'm wary. <laughs> well, 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 we can see what happens. And then uh, that was my list. I think we've exercised all of the list now. The only one I have left is going back to podcast lore. Warren Spector. Oh my god! And how he was a selling point for Epic Mickey. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Spectre. Wait, there's there's a and get, I get yeah. That's it. We're giving Warren Spectre author credit on this podcast. I'm trying to think of any others. I think it's done. I think we're done. I think Warren Spectre killed it. We've listed enough names. You know, wait, time out. Oh my god, I am so stupid. This is the one, and this is the segue. John Romero, John Carmack, and motherfucking American McGee. Obviously, John Romero um, did a bunch of different... Like, they obviously all went their separate ways. John Carmack stayed at id and was responsible for rage and all that stuff. And then he eventually got into VR technology. And I think he works with Facebook now on Oculus and Meta shit. Um, but um, John Romero, obviously, it was Daikatana fame. John Romero is going to make you his bitch. Um, and obviously uh-huh. yeah. to, to segue into our game of the week, American McGee. So American McGee's Alice is a PC platformer from the year 2000, developed by Rogue Entertainment. Notably directed by American McGee, a level designer for id games up to Quake 2. I believe a lot of the conceptions and initial sketch work of this game was also done by his uh, creative partner, RJ Berg. Um, it, in, it actually uses the id Tech 3 engine, and the game was met with a uh, high critical reception. The game is about um, Alice Liddell um, and is a sort of a sequel but very arbitrary usage of Alice in Wonderland um, iconography and characters in case that's not obvious um, 
After an Alice initially dreams of Wonderland, like in the novel, she awakens to a family house fire of which she was the only survivor. Years later, as a teen, Alice um, is institutionalized and goes back to Wonderland, but everything's a little bit more crazy. We're going to talk deeper lore with Murph later, but essentially Alice has to overcome her personal trauma, find the white rabbit, then the caterpillar, then create the Jabberwock's eye staff, then lead an army ultimately to dethrone the queen of hearts. There's a heavy, dark, grim aesthetic with edgy gore, but a cartoony uh, approach overall still. The game is mostly a mix of platforming and different weapons for uh, heavy combat with Wonderland creatures. Murph, what'd you think of this game? So you remember the last time we talked and you asked me at the end, should this podcast play good games? <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know what, as long as we're like talking about interesting games, do you, do you still commit to that? I think I would like to propose a certain amount of vetting for future entries to this podcast about whether they are actually interesting or they they have a history because they were because pickings were slim for their particular aesthetic. This is too savage. Wait, this is way too savage. We're, we're gonna we're gonna wind it back. Here's the thing. I didn't realize I was gonna be the one defending this game because I don't like this game that much. <laughs> I think this is possibly a DD cast pick. You don't think we have to do good games ever? No, no, no. We can we can do good games. Just you know, maybe maybe a little more meat, <laughs> meat meat on the bones for the game. I mean, that's fair. I mean, we're an hour and a half in, so we don't have to like talk a bunch about this. Talk about the game. What's what's the problem? Okay. What's the problem? Um. Okay, so from a gameplay perspective, I think, you know, I'll, I'll start with the praise. I was shocked at how well this game plays, how well it handles. When when the, I learned that this was like PC exclusive in the 2000s, I was like, oh man, I'm ready. I'm ready to jump with number pad enter. Oh. I'm ready to aim with the directional arrows. Uh, let, Let's go. But let's this do game this. also came out in 2000. Yeah. <laughs> okay, continue. So I was shocked at how well it controls. The platforming is a little floaty, but otherwise, like the aiming, the shooting, the running, the gunning, um, work very well. It is very satisfying to do the alt fire on your knife. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I that mean, all said, this game has, for lack of a better phrasing, an ammo problem. <laughs> yes. Where yeah. all your all your weapons that aren't your dagger are run off the same resource, which is called Force of Will. I'm going to call it mana because that's what it is. Sure. Uh, the second weapon you get is the deck of cards, which work as like your seeking machine gun. The issue is, is that the deck of cards takes your entire bar to down one enemy. Yeah. Every weapon has such a low, like, or such a long, like, time to kill on it. And they're all really inconsistently balanced, which is an issue because the enemies... The late game encounters just like plonking a bunch of enemies on top of you it's and saying, board. figure it out. Yeah, it's it's a shit ton. And we're not even, you haven't even mentioned the bosses yet. We're going to get to that. <laughs> the bosses aren't fun. The bosses are not fun, no. Um, I'll say my, my spiels. For me, jumping and moving around, it feels PC-like. It does feel like a PC platformer. Um, it's stiff and floaty, but I think what makes it acceptable to good is that it's consistent. And it also, this is going to sound weird unless you play it, but it feels appropriate for the game's spatial design. Does that make sense? Like, yes, I actually, I track what you're saying. Yes. Like, like it, 
if I was playing Alice in any other game, I would really not like it. However, the way the game's platforms are is largely acceptable. It's not, It's a. it gets to be a problem when there's precision platforming and you have to balance plates around. But largely speaking, the game is built and designed for how Alice moves. For me, it's just that she doesn't move in a very fun way. No, and the enemies all move faster than yes. her. So, Which and, becomes and, a problem when you have a lot of weapons that require some amount of precision. And, and and your primary move for every fucking enemy and every fucking boss is to try to back away as much as you can, try to circle strafe, and try to fucking wheeze your way into killing something to get more mana and health. Because pretty much everybody drops one. And so it's not... And and then you just try to kill it as much as as easy as possible. And mm-hmm. if it's a fucking boss, you're waiting forever for a health drop, or you're spamming load from your save because this game is also a save scummer. Yeah. So that's this game is very hard and unforgiving with its combat and platforming, but you can save literally any time, even mid boss battle. So I guess it's yeah. one of like, does that count for for variable difficulty? <laughs> like. <laughs> If you can save whenever is the game that hard? Or does it just highlight the bullshit? Well, no, I mean, I guess that's that's one of those issues where it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because it's like, I would I would not want it removed because the game would be yeah. 10 times more frustrating. But also, yes, it makes it very obvious as to the problem. Yeah. When I'm when I'm saving after like doing one thing because I don't know if I can do that one thing again consistently <laughs> with the health that I I did it with, then I think that gets into a problem. I agree. Yep. 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 But let's talk about. The, I'll say something I like about the game for the most part, like the look. I do. I don't. I don't love. It has it. a good visual aesthetic. It has a very strong visual aesthetic. I th- I think it is important for this game to do that, and I am sure for most people that love this game and for like the cult aspect of it, I am sure that the character design and aesthetic is the primary, is the actual primary purpose to like the game. Does that make sense? Yes, I was actually looking up because I wanted a statistic on this. This game launched, and damn it, I navigated from the page. You're fucking it up, Murph. This game launched December 6th, 2000. Uh, Hot Topic started pivoting to goth uh, clothing in November 2000. Oh, so they... They were on top of it. Yeah, they were. They were Hot Topic on top of it. (laughs) I'm impressed. I guess it's hard for me to conceive, because I I guess I'm recognizing that I exist in a world that this game more or less helped make. Yes. The, The notion of childhood characters, but disturbing... Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Something, mm-hmm. something I have seen done a ton of times, especially recently on the internet. You know, with like the the Eldritch Garfields and whatnot. Yeah. And the oh, it's it. The Rugrats are actually all dead. Oh. And that sort of stuff. So I guess it just doesn't really. It doesn't shock me in the way that it probably shocked at the time. Yep. That makes you know. Now that you say that, that makes complete sense to where it's like that subversion, where it's like the edgy. Uh, that edgy childhood thing that's that's part and parcel now like the best you could hope for is creepypasta and this game is not mm-hmm. actually that scary um this game is actually pretty cartoony i the, the closest this game remind me to of and this is gonna sound so silly is conquer's bad fur day yeah no i can see that particularly the music in some the, places the music and the gore and and the fact that it was still very cartoony and didn't necessarily indulge in violence or horror in like a dark way 
um, made me think of Conker's Bad Fur Day. Yeah, it's just kind of like a character will die, but they'll explode into bloody chunks. It definitely feels like 100% like someone that worked on those old id games trying to tell a serious story. (laughs) And the tonal whiplash doesn't really work. Um, We're going to talk about the story in a second. Let's 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 wait for the story in another moment here. Um, what was like your favorite design? Because like I, I want to be positive in some ways, so I want to hear favorites. For me, I think my favorite design was the Jabberwock, and I think my fi- yeah, and I think my favorite level was the chess segment. The chess segment, yeah, it's so distinct, and I love the Jabberwock with like this steampunk aesthetic. And you know, what? I'll give shout out the voice actors for the Cheshire Cat and Alice do a very good job, particularly that Cheshire Cat voice actor. Yes. I li- My favorite level... Hmm. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're running I, dry. You know what? I'll say... I yeah. Well, I, you already said the chess level, and I'm trying to think, oh, I also like that one after it, but I can't think of what that was. Uh, I mean, technically, it goes... Uh... It goes extended. Um, I, I, I'll tell you what level I didn't like was the number one. I don't like it when we went into the sewers to go to the queen. I dude, swimming sucks. Mm-hmm. Point, point of order. Yeah. Um, swimming sucks. But I also was going to say I actively had, and I never had this during a game. I had a migraine during the Mad Hatter mirror stuff. Oh, that stuff. Yeah. That stuff is so visual chaos and difficult to look at it's literally for, for those that haven't played it it's literally a maze of mirrors where all the walls are reflecting each other oh my gosh and and you know i wrote down because and you said it at the very start when you first played this game you're like i could feel that this guy designed some levels for doom as is like a lot of the game will resort to labyrinths and small tunnels yeah. which isn't good for that running thing you talked about how you run slower so so it becomes yeah. a very weird process and and it feels like the game needs to be more vertical but also whenever it's vertical I don't like the game very much. I shouted when it said like oh to reach the castle you have to go through the queen's maze. <laughs> Remember when I said that mazes are a crutch? Yes. For game designers. So this game has three mazes in rapid succession, all of which are choked with enemies. These annoying-ass card soldiers that shoot missiles. That's their primary attack. So you'll have five dudes shooting exploding missiles at you. It's visual chaos. Oh my gosh. Huh. <laughs> um... Um, I'm running out, Murph. I'm already running. Well, well, we, do you want to do story yet, or do we still want to talk game? I... Bosses. How'd you feel about the bosses? I I hated them all. I already said I already said my issue with them. Yeah, yeah. The bosses aren't the bosses aren't that great because they're just constant pressure. Uh, there's no real. Only the centipede has like a gimmick. I liked the centipede in all forms. Yes, I like I liked the centipede's look. He was also annoying still, but like the fact that the tummy thing was there, I. Yeah, and then you get the final boss, which I guess is all right. It's visually interesting. Um, it's a little bit easy. Real, real story, true story. This is what happened. I hit, I did the final blow on the boss, and it exploded. And then I got a hard cut to credits. So you didn't see the actual ending. I didn't see the ending. It didn't load for whatever reason. So I was like, oh, "Oh, oh, that's how it ends. And then, like, a day later, I was like, you know, I bet that's not how it ends. But the fact that I was deceived for a, for a whole day, a whole 24 hours, tells you a lot about how, how I regard this game. Um, well, well, with that, I will just go ahead and ask, uh, what would you think about the story? It's like, 
I mean, I guess it's serviceable as like this. I was looking into production. American McGee said he wanted to tell the simplest story possible. And I guess he achieved that. It is a very point A to point B story. Yeah. My issue is I take a lot of issue with games that are like, it re- it takes you to get to the midpoint to get the ball rolling. You, you go a long time without understanding, like, you understand that things are bad and that the Red Queen is bad. But, like, when you get to the Caterpillars, when you get the quest, and you're already, like, two or two or two hours. You away. have to go through, like, first you're following the White Rabbit. The White Rabbit shrinks and goes through a hole. So you have to go on a quest to get a thing that will make you shrink. Then you have to go yes. on another quest to make you grow to proper side. Then you have to find the Caterpillar. And then he's like, find the three pieces of the Jabberwock staff. And that's the quest. And it's like, oh, my God. And then the Jabberwock staff is a long segment of the game, too. So. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't have a lot of thrust here. It's no. just like, it's like, it's very much like, go here, do this. And you know, that sort of, that, that's fine for facilitating like transition and I don't know, like Doom 1. But this is like yeah. trying to tell a story. And I don't think the story it tells is very compelling. I feel a lot of it is just like window dressing. Like, yeah. I don't feel this needed to be an Alice in Wonderland game. I, and I think they said that too when I was I was looking at notes and stuff, and they were like they didn't want to borrow a lot from the from the source material. They just wanted to borrow just certain aspects to sort of flesh them out in their own ways. Yeah, it's they very much images. Yeah, it's very much the idea of starting with an asset, adding your own spin on it, and then going from there, which is fine, I guess. Just. Um, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm a guy that I have read the original Alice books. I like them. I like them as books. I have thick-ass annotated versions, which explain a lot of, like, what's going on in them. You know, I think a big issue with Alice in modern culture is that people, society has collectively forgotten that those games are, not those games, those books are parodies of a lot of Victorian culture and people the author personally knew. It's so disassociated from that now that we're kind of like, oh, he's just being random for random. That's fair, yeah. And in this game, it's just like... (sighs) Like, I, I know he said he didn't want to do direct sequel, but there's, like, stuff where I'm just kind of scratching my head while being like, why that for this character? You know? Like, the Mad Hatter. The Mad Hatter in this game is embodied as, like, this sort of, like, demon that's obsessed with time and keeping to a schedule and clockwork. And it's just like, yeah, the Mad Hatter in his very iconic phrase, I'm late, I'm late, for a very important date. That's the bunny. Yeah, only he's not in this game. The bunny gets stepped on. <laughs> Oh my gosh. No, yeah, and then it, it, it it's phrased in a really bizarre way where the Mad Hatter is like a primary antagonist for Alice, which I guess we will also talk about why. Um, I, I don't think the game is very subtle and in a bad mm. way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's not. It doesn't feel... It, I'm, 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 I'm like scratching, like scrounging for like, what's the allegory here? For me, for me, what it is is like, okay, let me ask you this. What were you thinking or hoping when you started the game? I was hoping that it was going to be like straight up like a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. I thought there were going to be like, you know, like references. I I, I maybe in my nerd brain, I was like, I'm going to feel rewarded for having read the source <laughs> material. And you were not. And at most, I was like, holy shit, I don't think I've ever seen the griffin or the mock turtle in any Alice adaptation, so points there. At least they pull deep cuts, but, you know. Yeah. That I'll t- voice I'll, actor. I'll, 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 that, oh my god, that was so bad. I... <laughs> 
Anyways. Remember, remember when the Griffin motion tweens across the fa- frame with anime speed lines? <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm going to say what I was hoping for the game. And I think was the core issue with the tone was I, it's not that I wanted something serious, but I, I always felt like that. I wanted it to be deeper than it was. And it never, it was never deeper than a Hot Topic t-shirt. Yeah, like I've seen people, because I was like doing digging, like why is this considered like a, like a cult classic? What are people getting out of this? And I'm seeing people like saying, oh, it's a, it's a story about mental health and self-actualization. Alice confronts her own demons. And it's like, yeah, but is it though? Murph, I have a question. How much do you like Sucker Punch? I hate Sucker Punch. I hate is, Sucker is Punch so Is it worse so than American Mickey's much. Alice? Yeah, no, I, the Sucker Punch <laughs> analogies were coming very to the fore. Because you know why I hate Sucker Punch so much? It's not really the movie, it's the people telling me I don't get it. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, now we're getting the analogies in line now. This is all making sense. It's all. And then I up. see, and then I see people being like, "Oh, this is American McGee's calculated takedown of that pederast Lewis Carroll." I never got that vibe. And it's like, well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like you know what? If that's what it was, then they again going back to the Alice books, they should have included the White Knight, who is a character in the book. He's Lewis Carroll's self-insert OC, who's Alice's best friend. Well, not best friend, but he helps her out. And it's like, you know what? If that's what it was supposed to be, then you should have had, like, the White Knight be the villain, and that would have made the game deeper. But it's not because American McGee didn't think that deep about the game, and I think people are projecting. So you, do you hate this game? I don't hate it. It's mostly benign. I just kind of wonder, like, what was it that drew people to it, you know? I'm sure, I'm sure time was, like, the thing, like, the context of for where it was was like a really big deal because it's as you said where it's like the subversive elements of like a very common thing that was that was it's not pre-internet but like it was pre a lot of what was like oh isn't it interesting or isn't it cool so like this was very novel at the time and i think i think this game is prominent in my mind because i had just entered high school when the sequel came out and the sequel was huge you know I was reading, I was watching like video reviews for like the franchise as a whole, and the comments were filled with people like, oh man, I remember playing Madness Returns in my sophomore year. And like all the comments were about Madness Returns. So maybe that's the good one. Maybe, maybe Madness Returns slaps. Would you, re- let me ask you this. I don't know if we're at the stage of wrapping up immediately. Would you play the sequel? I guess I would. Yes, I would play Madness Returns. Okay. Because I guess that's the one where all the content is. Apparently, they added a bunch of things. Like, they added a a better jump to Alice, and they added better weapons. Going back to, like, what I remember from, like, Let's Plays of it, which I didn't really watch in their entirety, it seemed like they were going more for, like, a Devil May Cry. That's... Okay, now, to be fair, like, yes, I think... Because I think the issue is, is this game... This game needed to be better in one arena, and it was definitely not going to be platforming for the way it was. It's it's not that's not there. So it's like clearly combat is a primary focus, and then the combat is not much to brag about. So yeah. like if they if they added things to make it more streamlined into a Devil May Cry experience or whatever, I would be about it. I I would definitely play that. I mean, going back to like the discovery I made like with the story, the game manual has the entire like explanation within it. Do, do, uh, do you want to explain it? 
So it's like, uh, evidently the game shipped with this thick, like, short story, next, like, in addition to the manual, it was its own separate thing, that's like Alice's doctor in the real world studying her, and the impression you get in the game is that this is all in Alice's head, like, happening in, like, one coma, right? Yes. When you read that story, he's like, oh, we gave Alice her rabbit toy, which is the start of the game, that's the opening cutscene. And then the next day she woke up and told me about Wonderland. And then it's like covering his observations over the course of a year, during which Alice like gets up and walks around and says really random things like, you got to use the the exploding jack-in-the-box on the voracious centipede and things like that. And it just completely- I mean, it's just instruction manual shit. Like that sounds like instruction manual garbage. Yeah, it just completely explains as like, oh, she really doesn't like these two- orderlies one's tall and one's fat and then it's like oh the the owner of the asylum came today and he really keeps to a schedule and is proud of his top hat and it's like oh okay i see <laughs> alice stabbed the, alice stabbed a cook that was try- a nurse that was trying to bathe her and said you won't eat me today duchess you, you know um do you know the do you know the super mario brothers instruction book the one that says all the blocks are people yes Yes, that lore. Is it is it as lore ruining as that? Yes, but in a different way because it's like, you know, when you play the game itself, the allegory is thin, but it's there, and this just kind of tears that away and makes it it makes the subtext text. Yes, I agree. Whereas like I, I like that was that was the the biggest amount of depth you could have for the game story was her own personal development. And her and her journey through trauma or whatever. So when you make it very literal, it's a problem. Yeah, and I just don't see. I mean, I I, I don't really struggle with mental health, but I I know a ton of people in my life that do, and I just don't see this being a catharsis for them. I've never they've never expressed any enjoyment for things where mental health is a demon that you have to slay, and I've never seen that done well, save for. Hellblade Sinua Sacrifice because that game actually was written by people that struggle with that and they put depth to the narrative like the game is all style no substance and I think that's the best way to sell it I I would agree with that I think it's a I, I think it is a shame that we had to jump through a ton of gray market hoops to play it because it's not available anywhere they should put it on Steam and I and I would like I would buy this game for like six bucks on sale at good old games or three bucks or something that's like the range I think that's acceptable yeah I, I absolutely Absolutely. I think there's really no I I don't understand why it's not available anywhere because it runs fine. I got it to run just fine. I didn't even have to run like an emulator or a uh, compatibility mode. Yeah, which is amazing for a game this old. Yes, exactly. And that's part of like my surprise and how well it ran and played. Do we, do we have any other thoughts on this game? I, uh, the voracious centipede isn't a character in the books. So I don't know why he's there. All right. Okay, Murph. I think this I think this podcast is I have a brilliant idea. I have a really really good idea. Yeah. yeah. We were we were real down in the dumps. We were a couple of negative Nancys. Yeah, time, we so. we were negative Nancys. You know what it is? I think I think it's not you, it's me. I think we need guests. And I know I know what you're yeah. going to say. But Brogan, I kept telling you we don't want guests. Well, it's my choice. Yeah. I think I want guests. Okay, yeah. No, I I totally follow your reasoning there. <laughs> 
Okay, good, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. So the next episode, uh, dear viewer, is going to be Skull Monkeys with Mac. And uh, I I wrote down in my notes that... uh, Critically optimistic. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, we're going to do plugs as well later. But um, I was going to say I need him on once. So that way, when I bring him on the second time, I get to play the Return of the Mac song. Ah. So so we need to speed this up along, you know what I mean? There's no introduction of the Mac song? I don't I don't believe so, no. I, I'd have to look that up. Well, all right, all right. <laughs> okay, let's plug. Go ahead and plug the rest of the podcasts and shit. Uh, okay, so on the Twin Geeks Network, we have 808 and Prod Breaks with Calvin and Kevin. What? Uh, <laughs> okay, all right, good burp. Continue. <laughs> with Calvin and Kevin. Um, and a rotating crew of panelists. They talk about their favorite hip-hop and rap artists, really breaking down distinct, like, niche genres and influences and going album by album. Then Calvin, there's also The Fright Files, which he just started with Ben, where they look at kind of the scope of different horror franchises, like staking a franchise like The Ring and going into different adaptations of that original movie and sequels. Yep. Uh, we've also got the stacks, which Stephen has told me in the future, just do it under a single umbrella. I don't need to break down each individual show they do. <laughs> so, he gave you that note. That's very nice of him, by the way. That is very nice of him. Um, so the stacks uh, have sort of a rotating uh, bit of shows. They have like stacks office hours where it's uh, Stephen and Jack just kind of shooting the shit about different media they've consumed and their week. It's a very casual water cooler style podcast. They also have note from the author where Stephen interviews his uh, favorite letterboxed reviewers and sort of their process when it comes to like reviewing a film. Uh, Steven's also on Spoiling Things. I'm thinking of Spoiling Things, yes. I'm thinking of Spoiling Things, which he uh, co-hosts with Vaughn, uh, where they talk about very contemporary just-released films. I'm actually on the most recent episode, the Grab Bag Special, where I'm talking about Prey, since I am a Predator fan. Are there any good... Oh, do you told me about Alien vs. Predator 2008 game. We may play that. I'd like to play that again. Or we could play Predator Concrete Jungle. I, uh, Alien vs. Predator on the Atari Jaguar. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see what we do. We'll see. You might play a game. Might play a game or two on this podcast? Uh, yep. You, and then, you promise, uh, mister? Did you, did you even mention the Twin Geeks? The premier podcast for this site? I mean, yeah, the Twin Geeks podcast on thetwingeeks.com. Calvin and David. David and Cal <laughs> discuss director of film filmography. Do not repeat after me. You're confusing me. Um, and they are currently going through Robert Altman's uh, filmography. Murph, you're slipping on this plug. I, I, so many plugs. <laughs> you're going crazy. You know what? We're going to take you to the asylum sometime and you're going to you're going to have your own little wonderland experience. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I helped I helped uh, David watch Popeye uh, yesterday. Popeye's a good movie. I, I recorded a Twin Geeks podcast with David on Robert Altman's Pop- Popeye years ago, back when the pandemic started. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a good movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thumbs up. <laughs> I- uh, is that it? Are we, are we done plugs? I I mean, sure, yeah. Anything, any any non Twin right. Geeks media you want to plug, Brogan? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Nope, I'm good. All right. Well, then, d- dear listener, stay stay sexy. All right. See see y'all later. Uh, Murph says stay sexy. I'm more like let's let's be a platonic relationship, dear viewer. You know what I'm saying? Not, not saying that. There's no, no, yeah, yeah, dear it's viewer, just... feel free to social my para. Oh, okay. We're we're done now. It's done.
see you guys later. <laughs>